Welcome everyone to Daf Yomi, one week at a time. Uh, we are in Masechet Ketuvot, and today is our eighth lesson, and we are going to be reviewing Daf 49 to 55. Um, and um, just uh, the top of 49, we'll just finish off uh, the idea of uh, again, is the uh, betrothed maiden. Um, the the Gemara tells us that, uh, again, as we mentioned last week, we're going to be very particular with understanding the verses. Uh, and therefore, when she's called a maiden, it means she needs to be uh, a young girl between 12 and 12 and a half. Um, she needs to be a virgin. Uh, before the incident happened, uh, and she needed to live in her father's house. Uh, if she already entered her husband's domain, then uh, it is not under the category of the betrothed maiden, and it's something else entirely. Um, we're going to start a new Mishnah, and um, the new Mishnah is going to start uh, an interesting uh, larger discussion about obligations that a father has to his children, sons, and daughters. Uh, so the Mishnah tells us on Da 49 that a father isn't obligated to support his daughter, um, and when he dies, the sons inherit the father, and the daughters are supported uh, from the father's estate um, only after he dies. Uh, this concept of being supportive is called mizonot. Uh, again, the word mizonot means food, meaning uh, the, the father's estate needs to be used uh, in order to feed the, the daughters. Um, the Gemara says that because the Mishnah says he isn't obligated to support the daughters, uh, while he is alive, it seems to imply that he is obligated to support his sons. Um, and um, then uh, the the Gemara continues extrapolating from that con from that statement that it's a mitzvah, meaning it is a um, I guess a, a, a very good thing uh, to support the girls, but it's not. Um, he, he is not obligated to do it. Um, and here the Gemara gets into an, a whole discussion whether it's a mitzvah, again, whether it's the right thing to do to support the sons and daughters, uh, or does he not have an obligation at all. Uh, from here, uh, we get into a list of decrees uh, that were made in Usha. Um, Usha was a city uh, in the in the Galilee, in the Galil, in the north of Israel. Um, and uh, for those of you who are interested, just in terms of historically um, and archaeologically, uh, my friend Shuli Mishkin wrote a really nice uh, article on Usha. Um, I think it was last week, because I think she puts them out uh, on Wednesdays. So I think last Wednesday she put out this article about Usha, and it's really fascinating. It's important to understand um, that uh, till the destruction of the temple, uh, the center of Judaism was in Israel, was in Jerusalem, um, right? It was very temple-centric, 
Um, and because the temple was in Jerusalem, so too was uh, the Sanhedrin, the great court. Uh, the, the center of religious life was in Jerusalem. When Jerusalem was destroyed, the center of Jewish life moved to Yavne, uh, right? The very famous idea that uh, they ask for, right? The Tenli Yavne Vechachameha, right? After, uh, right before the destruction of the temple, they ask that they would be able to, to reestablish uh, or establish uh, a Jewish center in a new place, and that is Yavne. Um, for those of you familiar with Israel, there is actually a modern city called Yavne, uh, and it is based on um, where, uh, you know, where Yavne was, uh, again, you know, uh, at the destruction of the temple almost 2,000 years ago, a little bit less. Um, and then um, from Yavne, um, um, Shuli actually explains that after the Bar Kokhba rebellion, uh, which was after the destruction of the temple, um, there was a devastation afterwards, meaning the um, Bar Kokhba rebellion was defeated, um, and it basically destroyed uh, the religious center in Yavne, and basically the uh, religious center moves up north for the first time, meaning it's not in Jerusalem, it's not in Yavne, rather it moves up north, from up north, um, there are various stops along the way where it goes. Um, it's interesting, Shuli described that there's something called Shvil, Shvil Hasanhedrin, I think it's called, the Sanhedrin's um, um, trail. And it basically follows all the steps of the Sanhedrin. Again, the Sanhedrin is the court, uh, what you would call the Supreme Court uh, of uh, the Jewish community. Um, and Usha is basically the first stop in the north. Uh, and then it moves around uh, a little bit in the north as well. So um, she also explains that um, um, that at that time, it's after the rebellion is quashed, uh, and therefore there's very harsh economic, uh, there's a lot of economic hardship at the time uh, when we're talking about the time period of Usha, which means people are very, very poor, uh, which really explains our daf, because you'll see that the decrees are really about when there's very little in the father's estate, where does that money go, right? We're not talking about when someone has a million dollars and the sons want all million, you know, all of that, and the daughters are left penniless. Thank we're you. talking, we're talking about, um, Thank you. Uh, we're talking about um, really people who are extremely, extremely poor, and you know they don't know how to stretch, you know, the ten dollars amongst for children. Um, so that's really what we're discussing. Again, her article on, on the Hadron website is really uh, very, very interesting. Okay, let's go to the decrees in Usha. So the Gemara Daf 49 tells us that in Usha, um, again, uh, um, um, here they said, right, a father does need to support the young sons and the daughters, uh, right, again, it seems to be they have very little money and it was really hard to support everyone. So in Usha, they said, you need to take care of your children. I know it might not be, uh, you know, an obligation according to Jewish law, but 
you need to take care of your children. Um, so that was uh, one of the, the decrees. Uh, another one was if you write away all of your property to your children when you're still alive, um, the children then have to support their parents. Because if the parents gave the children all the money, how the the parents going to live? Um, so then the, the children need to support the parents. Um, if um, the father dies, uh, the children need to take care of the widow. Don't forget, again, nobody has a lot of money. So the children need to make sure that they take care of the widow. Um, the Daf 50 tells us um, when giving charity, right, make sure you don't give away too much because then you're going to be left with nothing. Um, so the Gemara actually here says, don't give more than a fifth of your wealth to charity. Again, I think it's fascinating. We would think, give away everything, right? That's, you know, be as charitable as possible. The Gemara says, within reason, because if you give away everything, then guess what? You're going to need charity. So now you become a burden on your community. That's not fair. So be very cautious and careful when you're giving charity, meaning obviously think of everybody, but think of yourself as well. Um, you know, if again, as I mentioned, if you give everything away, the community now needs to support you. How is that responsible? Um, again, uh, since we're talking about, uh, I guess I would say, uh, parenting uh, suggestions, one being, uh, you know, feed your children. Um, the second is, um, till the child is 12, uh, the Gemara says you should be easy on your child. Uh, after 12, you should be much more forceful. Um, or you could be a little, you can be harsh on your children from age six. Uh, you know, that's when they're starting to learn. Uh, you should start teaching. Uh, at age six, you should start teaching Humash, meaning Bible. At 10, you should teach Mishnah. At 13, the child is already able to fast, or at 12 for a girl. Um, and here, um, again, since we're talking about parenting, uh, maybe skills, the Gemara tells us there are certain antidotes if, if someone is uh, stung by a scorpion or a bee. Um, you know, uh, what about going to school? Uh, the Gemara says it's hard for children under six to go to school, uh, but maybe it's good for them if they're advanced, you can send them to school. Um, I think it's, this is just a very interesting conversation. Again, for us, it seems maybe a little bit foreign. You know, I always tell my students when we're talking about um, um, honoring your parents, uh, I say, you know, we take it for granted that our that our parents feed us and clothe us and take care of us. That is not... Uh, shouldn't be taken for granted, right? And we really see it here in the Gemara uh, that there were times that parents could not take care of their children. Um, so, uh, you know, for children, they should be very, I think, grateful that their parents do take care of them. Uh, and as parents, we should make sure to take care of our children. Um, okay, um, now let's go back to, um, um, remember we said that a woman comes in to a marriage, she might have certain property that she has rights to. Um, what if she sold that those properties while her husband was alive? Uh, now, really, he has the rights to those property. Um, if she dies, the husband can go and take those uh, the, the, that land back because she really didn't have the right to sell it. Um, it was it was his basically. I mean, she had control over it, um, but 
really, in essence, it was his, he can take it back after she dies. Um, again, uh, there seems, there's a verse that says that you should give tzedakah, you should give charity at every moment. We just said that's not very smart. So the Gemara explains, what does it mean giving charity every moment? This is when you support your children, uh, right? That is giving charity every moment of the day. Uh, or it might mean to raise orphans, right? Meaning, again, look outside of your home and see who you can help and how to help them. Uh, so it says, you know, raising orphans, marrying them off. That would be called giving charity every moment. Um, the, there's a verse that says that wealth and charity last forever. Um, the Gemara interprets this as learning Torah and then teaching it, right? Teaching your learning is uh, charity. Um, or maybe it's about writing a Torah scroll uh, and lending it out. So again, you're, you're, um, you are wealthy and you're giving charity, meaning you have something and you're sharing it. Um, there's a verse that says that having grandchildren brings peace to the world. Um, and that uh, basically it means that the children won't fight over the inheritance. There's someone who is going to inherit. Um, as we mentioned, sons are the ones that inherit the property. Um, but as we mentioned, the daughters are supported from that estate. So it's important to understand that, uh, again, it's not like the Jane Eyre, Jane Austen books where, right, the, the, the son got everything and the girls are out on the street. Um, the sons get everything, but they must support their sisters. Um, okay, um, we're going to learn a new, um, a new concept. We'll get to it a little bit later, uh, which is the, um, uh, a, I guess I would say a supplementary or uh, a, another, a part of the Ketuvah, which is written to the male sons of the woman, uh, basically the wife's male sons. Um, and um, this is, it's a clause that's written into her Ketuvah that ensures that her sons inherit her property and that they're not divided up between all of the father's um, children. Remember, a father, can, a man can have more than one wife, so therefore he can have children uh, from different wives. Um, this uh, clause is there to ensure that this woman's sons uh, inherit her property and that it's not divided uh, equally between all of the husband's children. We're going to get back to that um, in a little bit. Um, so, um, now we said, um, support, right? We use the word mizonot, right? Support for the wife or for the children. Um, does it really mean, is it coming from the dowry that the father gave, gave the, the woman when she came into the marriage? Uh, or does it mean like actually really giving her food? Um, can it, does it come only from property? Or can it also come, um, it can also come maybe from movable objects. Uh, in the Gemara, the, the way we say is metaltaline. Metaltaline means movable objects. The, uh, you know, the jewelry in the safe, 
the furniture, anything you can pick up and move around as opposed to land, right? A, a person's estate is generally the land. Um, so here, um, right, some say that uh, to support the girl that only comes from the estate, the land, and not from the, you know, whatever's in the safe. Uh, da 51 gives us a story of an orphan uh, that was given dates as her support. Uh, some say that they were picked already, and that might prove that um, you can use movable items to support the girls. Um, others say, no, it was actually still attached to the tree, and therefore it's seen as land and not as movable items. Um, the, the Gemara tells us that the court gives support to the male and the female orphans, right, the children, from land and from movable property of the father. So we see it can come from both. Um, and not only, right, it could be for uh, minors, but also for adults, meaning we want to make sure everybody is taken care of. Um, or the Gemara says, no, maybe it is only taken from the land and not taken from the movable items. Um, the next Mishnah on Da 51 tells us, and again, we've seen this before, the Ketuva is always 200 or 100. Remember, we said that is the base uh, value of the Ketuva. Um, and the Gemara says, right, even if they didn't write it, even if they didn't write a Ketuva, when they, if the woman gets divorced or if she's widowed, she is owed that money. It is, doesn't even need to be written down. Um, all of the man's property is, um, is a lien, right? Is, has a lien. We have a lien on the property um, for her ktuva, meaning she is protected, um, right? Even if he decides to sell the property afterwards, she can, they can come and get it back. It is owed to her. Um, also, we learned last week that the husband needs to redeem the wife, right? If she was taken captive. Um, I, I wonder, I have to ask my friend Shuli just historically, um, we talk a lot about redeeming captives. I wonder if it's something that was very popular in those days uh, or it just happened every once in a while. Um, but it seems that people were kidnapped uh, and then ransomed. Um, so the husband has an obligation to redeem his wife, um, even if he didn't write it in the Ketuva. Again, as we mentioned last week, there are obligations that he has no matter what, even if it wasn't written explicitly in the Ketuva. Um, he can't say, oh, I'm going to divorce her and then let her redeem herself, right? It doesn't work like that. He has a responsibility to her. Um, he also has to pay for her medical bills as long as they are married. Um, however, right he, there, he can divorce her and say, you know, you support yourself, like I'm, I'm, I'm done. Um, okay, um, the Gemara explains, again, there's a machloket if he has to give her 200 or if she actually has the power to deny it, right? We say she can mochel. Can she say, I know I have the right to 200, but, oh, I love you so much. Don't worry, 100 is fine, right? Or do we say no, right? Again, the, the rabbis really want to protect the woman, uh, and, and it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what she says, doesn't matter what he says. 
she gets 200 no matter what. That's actually a machloket. Um, again, if she has the right to um, give up, right? She, you know, if it's something that is is uh, her right, then she, maybe she has the right to give up that, you know, that uh, that right. Um, so um, the the Gemara continues and says that every document has. Uh, a guarantee, like already written in, uh, again, as we mentioned, even if it's not written explicitly or no, um, you need to write explicitly that, let's say, these lands are uh, in guarantee for um, for the property. Uh, and if you don't, then maybe no. Um, the, um, the We continue to say that there are five claims that can be collected from Free assets, meaning whatever property uh, the husband um, had at the time of death, um, and not from lands that had a lien on them. Um, so it depends what the claim is and where you're going to collect it from. Um, if a woman uh, was uh, if a woman was violated, she can return it to her husband. Right? We discussed this previously. Um, as long as she was not um, it, as long as it was not consensual, she can return to her husband, um, right? Again, if she wasn't forced, then she cannot go back to her husband. If it's consensual, it's seen as having an affair. Uh, if a woman has an affair, um, she cannot go back to her husband. Um, uh, how, the only exception to this is the wife of a priest, the wife of a Kohen. Um, if she is, even if she's violated, she is not allowed to go back to her husband. Um, and that, that impacts whether or not the husband has um, a, a um, obligation to redeem his wife, because it seems that the, it's linked to the fact that she can come back to him. Um, maybe if she can't come back to him, then maybe he doesn't need to redeem her. That's where the Gemara is going with this. Um, the Gemara says, right, what if a woman was captured by bandit? Um, can, uh, she can return to her husband, even if she served the bandits because again, she did that out of fear uh, and therefore she can return to her husband and therefore he needs to redeem her. Um, a woman taken by the king in order to be part of a harem, um, it's like being captive uh, and therefore he needs to redeem her because she can go back to him. It's against her will, um, right? And, you know, like a Hashverosh and his harem. Um, but um, if she's taken by robbers, um, then again, it depends what kind of robbers, if, right, if, if she wanted to be married to the robbers, then maybe it was consensual, she can't go back, so then maybe he doesn't need to redeem her. Um, the, um, then the Gemara asks, if it's all about her coming back to him, what if the original relationship was in violation of Jewish law, right? What if we have a high priest, a Kohen Gadol, who was married to a widow? He's not allowed to be married to a widow. Um, so the Gemara says he actually does need to redeem her, um, even though they were not allowed to be married in the first place. Um, he does need to redeem her. Um, however, if he was married to a, uh, a woman who's a mamzeret, right? She was what we would call illegitimate, but we say really it means um, she is the 
um, product of a forbidden relationship, right? He is not allowed to be married to her and he can't, right? She's not allowed to be married to anybody, uh, you know, to anybody that's not of equal status. Um, so he doesn't need to redeem her because again, he can't bring her back to him. Um, or again, as we mentioned, excuse me, um, maybe the the Kohen Gadol does not need to redeem the widow because he cannot be married to her, so he doesn't need to redeem her. Um, um, ah, what if a, a woman vowed not to derive any benefit from her husband? Don't do this. We'll talk more about it in the next Masachet when we get to Nidarim, making vows. Uh, again, it's not clear to me if this is something that was very common or the rabbis are trying to just give us an important lesson. It's very, um, the rabbis take vows very seriously, uh, right? So in general, like I really try and it bothers me when people say, I swear I didn't take it. Don't say that. Don't swear. Um, like I believe you, but um, we take swearing very seriously. Though, of course, here we're talking about uh, when people say, right, or when people say, I swear to God, don't do that. Uh, we take that very seriously. Um, so let's say a woman said, right, they got into a fight. She doesn't, I don't know, she's mad at her husband and she says, right, I swear I don't want to have anything to do with you, right? I don't want to have any benefit from you. Uh, so what if she says that and then she gets captured? He needs, right, does he redeem her or not? She just said she didn't want any benefit from him. Um, so uh, the Gemara says, right, if he, now this is another important thing with vows, a husband has the right to annul his wife's vow if it has something to do with him. So this is very direct, directly related to him, right? So if he upheld the vow, meaning he didn't annul it, uh, so then, um, um, so then maybe he needs to redeem her or no, right? Because she took the vow, he doesn't need to redeem her because that's the vow that she took. Let's say he took the vow, he still needs to redeem her because at the beginning of the marriage, and I think this is, again, very cool, right? At the beginning of the marriage, he had certain responsibilities. You can't, like, two years later, um, you know, change the rules, right? When she got into the, came into the marriage, she had the right of being redeemed. Therefore, even if he takes a vow later on, uh, he still needs to redeem her. Um, okay, um, if she was taken captive and then her husband died, so now we have the the orphans, right, the inheritors, um, right, if he knew about it beforehand, before he died, so then the inheritors need to redeem her because it was his obligation. He knew about it, so it's as if he... Uh, I guess, like, accepted that obligation. Uh, and then when he died, now they have that obligation. Um, but if he didn't know about it beforehand, the orphans never took on that obligation, and then they do not need to redeem her. Um, or maybe they don't ever have to redeem her, because, again, uh, the father is different than the son, and his obligations are his, and their obligations are theirs. Um what if, and, and here again, like, I think it's just fascinating, right? The Gemara says, what if the um, kidnappers ask for 10 times more than she's worth, right? Again, interesting who's evaluating how much she's worth. Um, but, right, if they say, give us, a, you know, $10 million. And he's like, what do you mean? She's only worth a million dollars. 
um, right, what happens? So the Gemara says, if it's the first time that she was kidnapped, he needs to redeem her, right? That's his obligation. Um, afterwards, right, if she's kidnapped again, I guess they're living in a really dangerous place, um, right, then uh, he does not need to redeem her again. Or no, says the Gemara, maybe you never pay more than market value. Uh, you know, regular kidnappers took a million dollars, so $10 million, way too much. Um, right, again, uh, there's an idea that Gemara says, because of tikkun olam, uh, right, tikkun olam means making the world a better place. Uh, I would translate that as we don't negotiate with terrorists. If everybody's going to pay $10 million, they're going to keep kidnapping those Jewish children because, or whatever, the wives, um, because you keep paying. Uh, so the Gemara says, maybe don't pay the $10 million. Just interesting in terms of um, obligations versus like how the world works. Um, okay. Um, ah, as we mentioned, right, the, the husband has the obligation to support his wife. Um, what about the um, orphans, right? When the husband dies, the now the inheritors need to pay for the woman's food, again, support her, uh, we, what we called mizonot, um, and her medical doctor's bills, right? They need to take care of the widow, or um, maybe she was supposed to get a ktuva, so she gets 200 zoos, you get that, and now support yourself, they could say. Um, so again, here, uh, it depends on uh, how they decide that she will get supported. Okay, the next Mishnah um, on Da 42 is what I mentioned before, the, um, uh, the clause in the Ketuvah that protects the woman's uh, children. This is called, in Aramaic, it's called Ketuvat um, Banin Dichrin. Banin meaning children. Dichrin means like Zachar, Zacharim, the male children. Um, so as we mentioned, this makes sure that, again, daughters are not going to inherit, they get supported, but the sons are going to inherit. We want to make sure that the, the woman's sons inherit her solely and that it doesn't get divided up between all the other children that the father had. Um, so um, this is usually written into the Ketuvah. And here the Mishnah says, even if you didn't write it into the Ketuva, he's still obligated to do it, which is interesting. So then why do you need to write it? But okay, um, the Mishnah seems to imply, even if it's not written down, it's a right that the mother's children do inherit her. Um, the girls can stay in the house. And as we mentioned before, they are supported by the estate. Um, and again, even if he didn't write it in the Ketuvah, this still happens. It's an obligation uh, that we would say doesn't need to be explicit. It's, it's known that that is happening. Um, the widow can stay in the house um, and be supported. Um, and the, the, the Mishnah says that they used to write this in Jerusalem uh, and in the north. Uh, in Yehuda, in Judah, um, they used to write that if the children say to her, um, we're going to give you the ketuvah and now you're out of here, right? Like our father owed you X, 
we're going to give you X amount of money, and now we're kicking you out of the house. Um, so we're going to discuss this in the Gemara. Um, as we mentioned before, um, the the Ketuvat Banin Dichrin, even though it says that it's for the male children, it's really protecting girls. Why? Because we want to make sure that the father, right, think about it from beforehand. We want to make sure that a father, when he marries off his daughter, will give his daughter a really nice dowry. Because if he knows that his grandchildren will get that dowry eventually, he will be more generous. If he thinks, oh, it's going to be divided amongst the 10 other children, so then he's not going to give him, he's not going to give her all the property he wanted to give her because why would I want to give someone else's children, right? Again, uh, it's not his grandchildren, it's, it's the, right, the husband's other children. Um, so we want to make sure um, that, um, that he gives a good dowry. Uh, and from here, uh, the Gemara says that a dowry should be up to one-tenth of the person's property. Again, uh, we want the father to be generous to his daughter. Um, and uh, again, as we mentioned, the Gemara here uh, talks about if the inheritance is, uh, if the support is from the land or also from movable objects. Um, Daf 53 tells us a story about uh, writing dowries in the Ketuvah, uh, and there are different stories there. Um, if a woman, again, we, ah, the Ketuvah is um, uh, something that a woman is owed, and therefore it has value to the woman, and therefore, um, in theory and in practice, a woman can actually sell her Ketuvah. Right, she's basically selling her rights to whatever's written in the ketuva. Um, so the Gemara asks if a woman sells her ketuva to her husband, um, does she have banin dichrin? Like, does she lose the rights for her children to inherit her? Um, what if she um, forgets it? Like, uh, sorry. Um, what if she? Um, what happens with this ketuva? Um, uh, the Gemara explains that why would she ever sell her ketuvah to her husband? It means she's having financial problems, right? And she'd rather have the money now than later on in the future. Um, maybe um, only, um, only selling part of it. Uh, and therefore, when she sells it, she's getting her rights to the ketuvah, but she's not selling her children's rights to her ketuvah, and therefore, they still exist. Um, and that seems to be um, that seems to be the law that she can't sell away her children's right to the inheritance. Um, what if she forgoes it, um, like her ketuvah? Um, then her children do lose uh, that right. So don't do that. Um, and, and as I mentioned, selling her ketuvah to her husband is as if she sold it to somebody else. So it's the same idea. Um, if a woman remarries, thinking, uh, remember, uh, just uh, this is a flashback to uh, Yivamot, right? Remember, what if the husband went overseas? She thought he died. One witness comes and says he died. She gets remarried. Now the husband comes back. Uh, so really, they both need to divorce her. Um, now, what if she dies? Um, so the Gemara says that neither husband's heirs inherit her ketuvah, because now we have 
she's really married to two men. Like, what do we do about that? So the heirs do not inherit her ketuvah. Um, some say uh, that this is only a penalty in this case, because again, she should have done better research. In general, however, um, again, her children will still inherit her. Um, okay. Oh, what about, um, again, all of these things are a husband and a wife. What if they were just betrothed, right? They were engaged. They didn't get married yet. So the Gemara says that when the um, fiancé dies, when, when the girl dies, um, he doesn't have the obligation to bury her um, because they weren't married yet. Uh, and therefore, maybe there's no ketuvah either, uh, right? Maybe uh, there is no ketuvah paid. Um, so uh, the Gemara says that, uh, again, the daughters are fed uh, till they get married. Um, ah, okay. Next case. Um, again, we had a father died. They left, uh, he, there was sons and daughters. The daughters are supported till they get married, meaning once they get married, uh, the idea is that they're moving out of the house uh, and therefore they're no longer supported. Or maybe they're only supported till they become adults, right? Once they become adults, let them go get a job and support themselves. Uh, or maybe till they get engaged, right? So we see three different options in terms of how long they need to be supported. Um, so now um, the Gemara asks five different cases of women who are, um, again, uh, I would say of kind of in limbo, like questionable status, right? So far we've done uh, single, uh, engaged, married. What about, uh, what the Gemara says, what if it's a young girl who was married off uh, and then she um, and she refused that husband. Remember, we, it was called Mi'un. She had the right to refuse that husband. Uh, now she goes back to the father's estate, right? Does she get supported by the father's estate, right? Some say yes, because she's going back home. Some say no, she already got married, so she doesn't get supported. Again, all of these are going to end with the word teku, right? Teku means we're not sure um, how to, uh, we're not sure what the answer is, and we're basically waiting till uh, Elijah the prophet comes and tells us what the answer is. Um, so it kind of, those of you who like resolution, there is no resolution for the following cases. Um, okay, next case is um, the daughter from Yibum, right? She, does she, right, she's supposed to get supported, but who is she getting supported from? Her father's estate. Now, if she if she's the daughter of Yibum, her father is the Yavam, right? The new, the the uh, the brother, right? Or right? Doesn't she have to get supported from the original husband's estate? Uh, so that's the machloket. We don't know who um, whose estate it comes from. Remember, we said really it should come from the first husband, uh, but if there is no money, it comes from the second husband. Um, what about the daughter of a, um, a rabbinically forbidden relationship? If you remember, we had something called shniot, right? Secondary uh, illicit relationships. 
Um, so what about a daughter from there? Uh, again, it's not complete. It's not biblically forbidden, uh, but it's not okay. Um, so the, uh, da 54, what about the daughter of, um, of a engaged couple? Again, I think fascinating, right? Again, uh, they were engaged and there's now a daughter. They never got married. Um, who supports her? Right, the mother could get the ktuva, therefore the daughter gets the ktuva, or maybe no ktuva is for when you're married and the parents never got married. Um, what about the daughter of a woman who was violated? Remember, we said um, the husband, the the uh, violator, needs to marry the woman, or right, he is fined, uh, but maybe he doesn't have any other. Um, uh, obligations to the daughter or no, he also has to uh, support the daughter. Um, okay, uh, that's the end of that conversation. Um, and now we're going to move on. Um, okay, um, we said that the children need to support the widow as long as she is living in the house or they can't kick her out, uh, right? If she decides to move out, she forfeits her right to support. Um, what if she gets engaged? Um, she does not get supported anymore, right? As long as she can get uh, support from somewhere else, the, the estate does not need to support her anymore. Um, if she has an affair, uh, again, uh, or we'll say if she has a relationship, um, they do not need to support her anymore. Um, what about um, ah, and as we mentioned in Yehuda, in Judah, in the area of Judah, they could force the widow to take her ketuvah and then, right, stop, uh, stop supporting her, right? They say, listen, our father owed you X, we're giving you X amount of money, and uh, see you later. Um, and it seems that uh, there's really a difference of opinion if they had the right to do that or not. And the Gemara discusses uh, different cities in Babel uh, that did different things, right? Some said it was okay, and some says it was not. Um, here, uh, again, let's say the estate owes her a certain, a certain amount of money. Um, there's a machloket if the court appraises the clothing that she's wearing when she shows up to court, is that part of the appraisal of how much money she gets, right? So if she comes in a mink coat and she's only owed 200 shekel, the court can say, take your mink coat and have a nice day, right? They don't have to give you anything else. Or no, she was uh, promised a certain amount of money. She's going to get that amount of money um, as her ketuva. Um, and with that, we finished the fourth chapter of Masechet Ketuvot. Um, let's continue. Uh, the new chapter starts with a Mishnah um, that says, again, we said till now, the Ketuva is 200 or 100. Now we're going to learn the concept of Tosefet Ketuva. Tosefet means addition, right? If we're, the, the husband has the right to add to the ketuva, right? He can add, um, and if she gets divorced or widowed from the marriage or from engagement, she gets both of those things. Or maybe if she's married, she gets both of those things. But if she was only engaged, she gets the, the base value, 
um, but she does not get the tosefet, um, right? There, there seems to be this understanding that the tosefet, the addition, was meant to be after they get married. If they never got married, she doesn't get the tosefet. Um, here the Mishnah says that a woman can forego half of her ketuva, but not more, um, or no, uh, she cannot forego it at all, right? That's a machloket. Um, the Gemara says, um, you might have thought that you cannot add it to a ketuva. Um, the Gemara says, no, you can. And not only that, but when you add to it, it becomes part of the ketuva. Uh, and here, the Gemara goes through 14 practical applications that show that, let's say, if the woman or the man does something with the ketuva, it also affects the tosefet, meaning you might think that it's a supplement, like I used the word before. Um, no, it's part and parcel of the entire ketuva. Um, so, right, if let's say she sells it or she forgoes it, um, all of it goes, meaning she, it's all part of the, um, of the ketuva and um, the Gemara goes through all like 14 uh, different things uh, where, you know, like if she demands her ketuva, then she gets all of it. Um, if she violates Jewish practices, she loses her ketuva. She also loses the tosefet, meaning everything comes um, from, um, f everything comes together, meaning it's all seen as one big package. Um, the orphans cannot take land that was um, sold in order to pay the woman's uh, heirs, right? Again, the banim dikrin, uh, it's only for whatever land is free and available at the time of death. Um, the husband, um, ah, what if a husband declared the movable items for her ketuva, right? In general, the ketuva is paid from land. But what if he says it comes from these movable items? Then she can take those movable items and she doesn't have to take an oath. Um, we're concerned that, right, if he says, right, uh, all the jewels in the safe are for her ketuva, right? So at the time of death, she can take all the jewels in the safe. We don't have to be concerned that maybe he gave her something already, uh, and uh, and therefore we maybe we would make him make her take an oath again. The importance of oath, um, take an oath that she wasn't paid anything. Here, the Gemara says no. If um, he made this stipulation that you can give her everything in the in the in the safe, so then she can take it. Um, what if? Uh, these things were lost. Um, you can't give her anything without an oath, meaning she needs to take an oath to say she wasn't given anything, uh, or maybe she does not need to take an oath, meaning we trust that she's telling the truth and she gets everything she was owed. Um, what if land, a certain piece of land, was designated for her, for her ketuba? So then again, she can take that without taking an oath. Um, what if someone told witnesses to go and write and sign a document and give land to so-and-so. Um, if they acquired the land at that moment, so then they don't need to check afterwards if the person changed his mind 
by the time they want to give over the land because they already acquired it at that time. But if they didn't acquire it, so then they, there's a machloket if they need to go back and check that he didn't change his mind in the end. And the Gemara says the, the law is that he, they need to go back and check um, to see if he changed his mind. Um, there's a machloket, again, as I mentioned before, if she gets the tosefet, the addition, um, if they were only engaged. Um, and here, uh, there's an important word. Uh, it's in Aramaic. The word is umdina. Um, umdina means uh, an evaluation of a situation, right? Can I make certain assumptions? If I can make certain assumptions, we're going to go according to those assumptions, unless we prove otherwise. Um, so here the Gemara says that we have a machloket if we go according to umdina, right? Do we assume certain things or no, we have to check uh, exactly what his intentions were. Um, and here we have another concept. Uh, in Hebrew, the, 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 the term is a person is a shchiv mira. It means that a person is on their deathbed. When a person is on their deathbed, Jewish law gives them a certain power. Uh, it means that um, anything they say is taken at face value, right? Even if they don't write it down, even if it's not notarized, if a person on their deathbed says, give a hundred dollars to so-and-so and give another hundred dollars to so-and-so, right? We, we take into account that this person is being very serious because they see the end is coming and they want to get their affairs in order. So there are certain um, dispensations that the Jewish law gives a person on their deathbed. Again, uh, there's different ways to um, define on their deathbed, right? Does it mean they have a chronic illness? Does it mean they have a week to go? Does it mean it's within hours, right? So that's, that's um, a discussion in the halacha. Um, but again, the overall concept is that if a shchiv meira, if a person is on their deathbed, they only need to say something and we do it, right? We take it, um, we take it at face value. Um, and here uh, we'll end with uh, a story of a man who tells, you know, the people at his deathbed to do something. Uh, and then he makes them take a kinyan. He makes them like acquire, uh, acquire it as well. And that seems to be contradictory, right? If he's on his deathbed, he doesn't have to do anything after that. Uh, and then the question is, how do we see this case, right? And it seems that everybody follows the evaluation of this of the situation the umdana right the idea is that we assume he meant to give these things away and therefore um we we see it as it was given away as a you know as a gift or whatever he was trying to do um and uh the the gemara ends at the top of 56 saying that uh the law is that we follow rabbi elazar ben azaria that um the woman who was only engaged also gets the the additions to her ktuba um, if they, again, get divorced or if she is widowed, um, she does get everything. And uh, it seems that they voted on this uh, and they, and they uh, um, determined that that is the law, that she gets it when she gets divorced or widowed from marriage and even from engagement. Uh, and with that...
we finished this week's stuff. Um, yeah, everyone should have uh, a wonderful week and, uh, and see you next week. Bezrat Hashem. Uh, thank yeah. you. Thank, thank you, you, everyone. Thank you. Thank you, Rabbi.